when you need a website, you figure out how to buy a website online. The answer that a lot of new small business owners want is that there's a right way to do it, and there's not. Before you outsource to another company and spend a lot of money, try to set up your first phase of your store by yourself on a program like Shopify and just get some orders in and build from there. The first step for me from transitioning to online was building my website and I started with Shopify because that was a really great, easy e-commerce platform. Make sure you have a product that's really, really strong and then when the product's ready, then you launch a Shopify store. Damn, I need to get a referral link for Shopify. Everyone's like <laughs> waxing lyrical about it. It's so good. Hello, everybody. I'm Kelly Martin, and you're listening to Making It Work, made possible by FedEx. If you've ever wondered how a small business is run, you're in the right place. In this podcast, we ask U.S. entrepreneurs to spill the beans on what it's like to fire employees, find investment, and everything in between. For each episode, we tackle a different topic. And this time, it's how to get your store online. Whether you're coming from brick and mortar or want to be digitally native, we've got the answers. So should you build a site from scratch or just use that online store builder that everyone else goes for? Asking the questions is Tom Scallon. Just use Shopify. That's our entrepreneur's advice. You can go listen to Joe Rogan now. Okay, it's not quite as simple as that. It is true that a lot of the entrepreneurs featured in this season and the last season of Making It Work use Shopify and really, really like it. But just because that's where they ended up doesn't mean that's where they began. Marketplaces like Etsy, eBay and Amazon are all popular jumping off points for aspiring entrepreneurs. After all, they direct traffic to your product. And if that product is cat scarves hand-knitted by your granny, you might want to hold off on that $300 per month Shopify plan. When Kat Samagia started her business Locker Lifestyle in 2016, she started by selling her handy wrist wallets on Etsy rather than going all in on a website. Four years later, she sells on a couple of online marketplaces, but the majority of her sales are made through her online store, built with, you guessed it. The first step for me from transitioning to online was building my website. And I started with Shopify because that was a really great, easy e-commerce platform. So I taught myself how to go on there started building email lists, made sure I had social media presence on all platforms. And then that's what really kind of was the snowball effect. So how was your experience selling on Etsy and what pushed you to take the next step? I really enjoyed selling on Etsy for at first when I was just starting because I really had no idea what it was doing. It helped me set up shipping. I was able to still see customer comments, but you know, they still, people don't realize they take a chunk of your margins and you don't get customer emails and it's not as easy to interact with them. So I knew after a few months, then it was time to transition off of Etsy. Shopify offered a lot of the same features, but it was definitely more in terms of brand building where you're kind of lost in the marketplace of Etsy and, and through your own site, you can do a lot more with that. And then you seem as a more, not, I wouldn't say reputable brand, but Etsy is very like local maker, each piece handmade. And so we started and were able to work more from scale by switching to our own website. But my guess is that Etsy direct traffic to your product. So when you have to start your own website, all the organic stuff and the SEO is up to you. Exactly. So that was another thing too. I, I did get a lot of organic sales on Etsy 
But then on my site, I realized the the push and the traffic had to come from building the email list, posting on social media, and doing you know any PR that I could, and promoting and going to events as well. And when I would go to in person events, I would have cards, and then was also directing people to the site directly from then when I was meeting them as well. So why did you land on Shopify for your store? I chose Shopify because they are meant for e-commerce in terms of product-based businesses. They have all the things in place from uh, shipping discounts to the actual style and setup of a website. They have templates that were very easy to use and understand. And I was aware that actually a lot of other major brands still use Shopify today. And they have a lot of plugins, applications, automatic discounts you can create. It links really easily with email marketing. So it all these things kind of pre-set up that took very basic knowledge to learn, to be able to then implement for the store with social media, things all integrated as one. And then there's also tracking. So if I wanted to run any ads and things, it was really easy to format that and put into the back end of Shopify to be able to control and get data all in one place versus Etsy, you couldn't control any other plugins. You had one basic storefront. And then if I were to build a site from scratch, it would take way longer. I would need developers. I wouldn't understand you know, all that major code that would go into that. And then I wouldn't even get the same shipping discounts and, and other applications that is automatic with Shopify. And most of them are free as well. Do, do people find your website through a mix of paid and organic? So at first it was actually... 99% organic because I started doing pitch competitions and things like the FedEx grant that had a lot of natural PR come along with it, which I was very fortunate for. So we did, uh, whether it was some videos, the podcasts like this, any articles, things like that were great SEO and then linking directly to our site. So I was seeing a lot of traffic. I know you're pretty hot when it comes to winning grants. So would your advice to people be exhaust all of that free PR before you invest a large sum of money into paid advertising? That's a great point. And I would say 1000% because I learned a lot from doing the free PR. So that helps me now transition and understand what's worth paying for. What can I expect? What's going to be a typical conversion? And there really are so many free grant competitions and a lot of free PR that people are not taking advantage of. So that's something that I tell all my founder friends to try and utilize as much as you can, especially if you're starting out young, whether you're young or old, you can use it. So what's the future in terms of how your customers or potential customers interact with your product online in the future? I would say we're, we're on a few different marketplaces now. We're on a marketplace called The Gromit, which is almost like a um, Etsy type thing, but more mainstream and, and for local makers. We just launched on Amazon as well. And then our website, obviously, LockerLifestyle.com. And we have over 50 retail partners across the country. So we've got a good mix. And how is your experience on Amazon? Amazon, we have a love-hate relationship with, and that's how it goes, I think, for most of the makers that I know, because you can't control much customer data. You don't get emails. You can't control the feedback that you get on there. And it's such a mass marketplace that people can so easily, if they had a question about a product or, or ordered wrong, that's not something you can really help them with. It's 
something that they're just going to leave a poor review and kind of go on, whether it's a sizing question or things, whereas then we offer free exchanges and returns on our website. And Amazon does that as well, but we make sure we talk to the customer about what their feedback or if they had any issues and we deal with that directly. And then Amazon, it does a good amount of volume, but then they take a huge chunk of margin compared to any other marketplace that I've been on. And granted, they are big and they have great organic reach, but it definitely is difficult to differentiate yourself. And it's very easy for people to, other makers, whether they're local or international, to then try and copy what you're doing. I had people screenshot my listings and try and say they were, you know, selling our product, then it was lower quality and people thought it was our brand. So it's definitely difficult to have been managing that. I was going to say, because you want your product to be in the shop window and Amazon is a huge shop window, but with that must bring counterfeit products and knockoffs. Yeah, we, I had even people screenshot my reviews for an old product that I don't even sell on there anymore. And um, they were screenshotting my pictures, screen, screenshotting my reviews and adding it to their own website and trying to sell it to people. And the product wasn't even arriving. And then they come to my store and think that that's something that I set up. And then, you know, it's this whole issue of now it's not even just on Amazon. They're, you know, people are adding it to their own marketplaces and falsely. So what do you do about it? Is it just a case of speaking to Amazon? So we are a registered brand on Amazon, which, which helps us knock down, you know, people trying to use our listings and things like that because we do own the trademarks. But let's say, for example, there was a site um, from saying they were this Chinese wholesaler and they were screenshotting our imagery and reviews because they screenshot the re- our actual imagery with our packaging, my trademark names, our listings and everything. We can actually send a cease and desist letter to that site to get them to shut down. So it really depends if they're taking their own imagery and things like that. And see, there's really only to an extent, there's so much that you can do. But if they're actually on Amazon, if you're a registered brand through Amazon, they do a good job of helping protect you because they want a clean marketplace as well. Online marketplaces don't come without their pitfalls, but the opportunity to put your product on show to millions of potential customers means for most, sacrificing access to customer data and the odd knockoff here and there is a price worth paying. But not for our next entrepreneur. Ibuno Laloye is the founder of Live Breathe Football, a company that designs and sells apparel for soccer fans. According to this Philadelphia-based business owner, maintaining full creative control over messaging and user experience is how he's gotten people to fall in love with his brand. It probably helps that LBF started out on Twitter. Let's hear how he got from sending soccer tweets to setting up Shopify. By the way, Ibun's kind of a Europhile when it comes to soccer. So he calls it football. But you'll hear me, a European, call it soccer. You'll be fine. Before Live Breathe Football existed as sort of a brand that that sold things, it existed as like a Twitter account, right? So I, I would just sort of talk about football with a bunch of strangers on, on the internet, right? I'd watch football, talk about it, that sort of thing. So when I did start the brand, I needed a way to put up products to sell to people that I had known on the internet. So the first thing we did was uh, we had a big card sell store. That was like the big e-commerce platform at the time, right? Every small business owner that I knew that had a store, like a site to sell products was on big cartel. So I just naturally just created a big cartel site. And then 
Um, but you know how it is. It's like, you don't really know. I didn't know much about business. So it was just like, okay, I'm going to put this, the shirts on the side. I'm going to put the price in. It was very easy. And when somebody made a purchase, I just fulfilled the order myself. So I'd pack it, you know, ship it and send it off to the customer. Um, obviously as time went on, the needs of the business also changed. So we started, we found a platform, um, called Shopify that we then sort of transitioned to because Shopify is very robust. And there's so, there's so many things that you can kind of do on Shopify now as a growing business that. I couldn't do at the time with Big Cartel. What was behind the decision to move from Big Cartel to Shopify? If I remember correctly, Big Cartel was just a cart, you know? There weren't like really plugins or way to like, you know, get like a shipping, you know, platform to connect to it. And I just remember Shopify from our, our research at the time just seemed to have so much more capability out the gate. So it's like, okay, we want to ship a bunch of orders. How do we ship those orders? Oh, okay, we need ShipStation. Okay, well, ShipStation connects to Shopify. With an inventory management platform, okay, Stitch connects Shopify as well. So there were just so many things that we needed at the time. And Shopify seemed like the sort of central, the hub that could sort of pull all these things that we needed together. And it also seemed like they had a really robust um, app store where you can install different plugins and things that could really help your business grow. So that was really the main reason behind switching from Big Cartel to Shopify. Give me a little idea about what the customer journey is like and the connection between your social media and people finding the website and actually buying something. Yeah, so I'd say there's, there's two main ways people find out about LBF right now because we're primarily online. And that's through word of mouth and via social media or Facebook advertising. So typically, you know, you let's say, you know, Tom, you whatever, you're scrolling Instagram, whatever, and you see an ad for Live Beat Football. You love football, you know, you're a fan of the game, you know, you, oh, you say, oh, this this looks interesting. What is this, right? And maybe you don't click on it. You just kind of, you just, maybe you don't click the link to the store. You just kind of double tap on it, like the post or whatever. Um, and then maybe a few days later, you see another LBF ad and go, oh, this looks even more interesting now. Or perhaps you might be following someone on Instagram or Twitter that then talks about LBF and says, hey, I just got this great product from LBF. And you go, oh, I saw this ad a few days ago. Let me check these guys out. So you come to the website and then you kind of see what we have to offer. Maybe you're very curious about the brand. So you know what? This is a new brand. I don't, I don't really know what they're about. You click around, you read the brand story. You find out about, oh, these guys have been around for quite some time. They're really passionate about the game the same way that I am. And then you find sort of, you feel a connection to the brand and the people behind the brand. And they say, you know what? I want to support this, right? And then you get, you place an order, you get your product and you realize, wow, this is a great product. I really love this brand. And then we follow up with you in a week and say, hey, Tom, you know, thanks for supporting the brand. Here's more about LBF. We're really fortunate in the fact that like we have a lot of people now who have kind of become ambassadors and really fanatics of the brand where every time we have a drop, they, they're purchasing something. And that's kind of really testament to the, the power of, of football, first and foremost, and the passion that people have for it. But I think also in our ability to tell a story that's compelling and connects with people beyond commerce, beyond saying, hey, Tom, buy this product from us. Give us your money. Thank you. Get out of here. Right. For us, it's really about trying to build that relationship with every customer. That's weird. It's not like soccer fans to get fanatical about something. <laughs> not at all. Pretty much all of the entrepreneurs that we've spoken to are using Shopify. And the reason I hear is because of the functionality, the bells and whistles that they offer. What, what do you take advantage of in terms of plugins and stuff on Shopify? So page builders are helpful for us because you know we're a very visual brand. So that helps a lot. Product reviews is really helpful because you can't, it's not like you can walk into a store and feel the fabric or try it on or whatever. So people rely a lot on reviews. 
But the main thing that's been a game changer for us is really has been Clavio, this sort of email marketing platform that you can really, it's just really dense and really robust. And you can kind of really track people through a journey and kind of really kind of move them through I guess funnels, if you will, um, that's really powerful for us, but also just the ability to like cross sell and upsell. So, Hey, you just, you like this t-shirt, this hat goes with it, or these pair of shorts go with it, or you're about to check out, you know, you know what, if you spend an extra 10 bucks on this pack of stickers or this mug, you'll get free shipping. So those little things have been really helpful for us to kind of drive more business. Do you think however big livery football gets, Shopify will always meet your needs? It, it, It sort of manages to scale with you. Absolutely. And I, and I think that's that's the, the, the ultimate sort of benefit of Shopify is as we've grown, it, it just, like you said, it just meets our needs at each level, right? When we first started out, we were very small. You know, they have a tier where it's $29. So it's a very, like, it's a no-brainer cost, right? There's no downside, you know? Make sure you have a product that's really, really strong. And then when the product's ready, then you launch a Shopify store. Damn, I need to get a referral link for Shopify. Everyone's like <laughs> waxing lyrical about it. It's so good. What is it that people forget when they're setting up their online store? The one thing I would say is just kind of have all your your fine print stuff dialed in, right? All the questions that people could potentially have or you would have as a customer going shopping online. I would say focus on those things first, like make sure like, you know, for us, we sell clothing. So, you know, it's important that size charts are readily available. It's important that we have a, a sort of very easy return policy to important that we have affordable shipping rates. I think all those things are important to bringing your store online because um, I, I guess the ultimate point I'm trying to make is when you use stores online, it's going to compete with every other store online, including Amazon, for example, right? So it's important that you kind of have those things in place um, to kind of make that shopping experience easier for, for your customers. My guess is that the size charts and, and stuff like that is the last thing on your mind and this kind of least sexy thing when you're setting up an online store, but it saves you a lot of money and a lot of hassle down the line. Yeah, I'll be quite honest with you. We didn't really have a size chart on the website for years. A lot of the questions we're getting were like, oh, how does this shirt fit? How does this fit? How does this fit? And I was just like, hang on a second. We don't even have a size chart. So I looked at other clothing websites and noticed on all the product pages, they had size charts or a link to a size chart. So we spent some time crafting a very good size chart and then link it to that on every product page because, you know, it's just so easy. It's such an easy thing to forget. I don't know about you, but I always click on the size chart. Then they're always asking for a load of information that I don't know the answer to. And then I just click off and order the extra large. <laughs> that, that's another thing I've noticed too um, with, with size charts is, you, you, you have a lot of numbers on it that doesn't really mean anything to people. Like, okay, you so said chest measurements, this. Do people, most people know their chest measurements? So yeah, I do agree that there, there probably is a better way um, of communicating sort of sizing to people, to customers. Uh, it's not your fault, man. I think I just need to buy a tape measure. <laughs> You're listening to Making It Work. Coming up. Wow, 0405. And I'd be speaking to, to other entrepreneurs about Shopify. Yeah, Shopify didn't really exist, yeah. <laughs> when we started in 09, there were zero other paleo dessert companies, and there was only one other paleo prepared food company. That was Steve's Paleo Kit. He's like, hey, man, I want you to tell me what you're doing and what's going on. Back then, it was a lot of confused people and a lot of people that absolutely did not trust the internet and didn't want to place for orders on the internet. We actually charged $5 convenience fees to place your order on the phone at the time, and people would pay it. As a millennial, I grew up with the internet. Remember AOL? 
dial-up? Simpler times. But whatever your age, it's still easy to take the internet for granted, particularly online shopping. Especially if you spent the past year or so getting toilet paper delivered to your house. Our next entrepreneur remembers all too well what it used to be like. Nick Hawks is the owner of San Diego-based Paleo Treats, a company cooking up bars, brownies and other desserts to satisfy the sweet tooth of paleo dieters. This business entered the online space in 2009, hardly a lifetime ago, but it was early enough to the game for Nick to accidentally start a turf war with the only other paleo dessert manufacturer with a web shop. I can't say we had much experience with e-commerce before we started Paleo Treats. We had uh, a t-shirt company and we'd sold the t-shirts online a little bit, but mostly we sold those in person and mostly we sold those direct to stores, not to consumers. So Paleo Treats was really a, a strong intro into the online world because after we made the first 2000 cookies in our kitchen and sold them at the CrossFit Games, we came back and we saw that there weren't enough customers in San Diego to buy what we had. And we also saw that the product was something that people really wanted to, to pull from us. And so we needed to make sure we could connect with a, a national and even international audience. And the only way to do that uh, in 09 and probably still today is, is to go online. And that was a, a really exciting thing to do. Did you have to make the decision between brick and mortar or all in online? We certainly felt like that was a, a bifurcated decision. That was, it was one or the other early on. And we only did online. I mean, we'd sell to kind of every so often someone would say, Hey, can I pick up at your house? Cause we ran it out of our house for the first two years and we'd say, yeah, okay. And they'd pick up outside, but mostly we sold online. We just shipped out of the house and dropped boxes off of the post office and, and did it that way. And then, gosh, I think in 2012, we moved into an office and then 2017, the building we were in got condemned by the city and we all have 30 days to move out. So everybody's scrambling. We end up finding a place with a lot more walk by traffic and didn't really realize at first how profitable that could be um, until people started kind of poking their head in the door at the new location and saying, hey, what have, what have you got? I would say now brick and mortar is probably 50% of what we do. So going back to before you started your store, you had this great product um, you had to set up a website. You wanted to start selling online. You didn't have too much experience. Where, where do you begin? Where do you begin? I think you begin. You begin at the beginning, and that's that's the only thing you can do. Is, is the only thing you start off knowing is what you know, and then you think you know what you don't know, and then you also, in old Rumsfeld's great quote, you have to kind of realize that there's many things that you don't know that you don't know. So when you need a website, you figure out how to buy a website online. And we, we're talking about 2009, did you say? Yeah, May of 2009. So obviously the landscape has changed massively. You've got platforms like Shopify. But do you think it's just a lot easier to set up a store online now than it was? I think the, the balance of the challenge has shifted. So it's much easier to set up a store, uh, but it's also easy for everyone else to set up a store. So you've got more competition in that sense. I mean, when we started in 09, there were zero other paleo dessert companies and there was only one other paleo prepared food company. That was Steve's Paleo Kits, which is now I think called Paleo, uh, what is it? Steve's Paleo Goods. There's only two of us in the whole world that were selling prepared paleo food. And I remember Steve called me out of the blue when we were at the CrossFit Games, and he's an East Coast guy, super, super fun dude, but East Coasters can be kind of combative just in their approach. And he's like, hey, man, I want you to tell me what you're doing and what's going on. 
And we ended up being really good friends and, and kind of trading strategies back and forth and, and deciding like, hey, this is, we're two really small players. This is a really big pond. You're going to do snacks. I'm going to do dessert. Let's just help each other. You know, let's, let's make sure that our email lists know about each other. Let's make sure if we do any kind of marketing stuff that we help each other wherever we can. And that has been a really fun thing. I mean, as, as the space has grown, both of us have kind of crept a little bit into the other person's or the other business's boundaries. And, and we both acknowledge that and talk about that on the phone and say like, hey, guy, you know, hey, man, we, we can't do as much trading as we used to do or sharing as we used to do just because it's not as, as wide open a space as it was, but we're still going to support each other wherever we can. And I know when he's had hard times and I've had hard times, we call each other and just commiserate together and, and figure out the strategies that you need to do to, to get out of those little holes that you get in. I didn't know there was an east-west battle in the world of paleo. That's, that's just America, right? <laughs> no, nobody's going to get along. <laughs> Nick's right. It may be easier than ever to set up an online store, but if everyone can do it, suddenly that creates a lot more competition in the space. So if you were a web-savvy entrepreneur at the turn of the millennium, that was one hell of a competitive advantage. Introducing web-savvy entrepreneur Paul Pallas. After graduating from college in 2005, Paul joined the family business Swissco, a hardware supplier based out of Philadelphia. He's now CEO. His first job after joining in 2005 was to digitize the whole company and set up an online store. His second job was to persuade customers to actually use it. I finished up school and I started working for Swissco in a corner of the warehouse and built a e-commerce site. And I remember a day of seven orders was so exciting. I thought, you know, we're on to something. This is working. And then we got up to 30 orders a day. And I was like, wow, this is really happening now. Eventually, um, you know, we got up to hundreds of orders a day. And we got our own warehouse for just the e-commerce. I started working on splitting up our accounting books between the old Swisco and the new Swisco. And eventually we decided to shut down the old repair shop and go all out on the e-commerce side. So in most family businesses, someone would start off by sweeping the floor, but you set up a whole IT infrastructure. Well, I definitely was sweeping the floor. I've been in this uh, company since I was 12 and I was coming in on the uh, on the weekends or a day off or during my winter break and sweeping the floors and doing all sorts of miscellaneous jobs. So I got my hands dirty for years. You know, I, I never, you know, I was young. I never saw this company as being my future. It was a very uh, gritty kind of repair shop. But, you know, going to school and taking classes and actually using real world examples really helped me learn the curriculum. And at the same time, it helped the family business. It sounds like you're a real problem solver, kind of a, a bit of a nerd who just wants to get stuck in. Definitely. You know, I consider myself not lazy or a procrastinist. I consider myself as I don't like to do boring work. And if I can figure out a way to pr like create a software program that does the boring work for me, I will go out of my way. I'll work hard just to get rid of 10 minutes of boring work a day if I have to. And over time, you do a lot of that. You know, you're only doing the work you enjoy doing every day. 
The company was not digital. Everything was pen and paper. The accounting books were a mess. That was probably one of the worst parts of the company. My father and uncle grew up poor and they were very hesitant to ever turn away business. So they accepted any type of job, even if it would really bog them down, like the repair shop to do a $20 repair job. They would take it. They had a hard time turning away work. And I think that was a good lesson for me that I saw that sometimes turning away work is important because you need to concentrate on what you're good at and what makes money. They also, my father and uncle, didn't understand what it costs them to repair a window. And one of my classes at Temple was accounting, where I really studied on how to understand the finances of how to price your goods. So while the website was a the first step towards the e-commerce business, it really didn't become a business until I took over the books and straightened up our uh, accounting. So when did you go online? So we went online. I was still in school. I finished in 2005. And the first version of the e-commerce site was done in um, 04, 05. And then as soon as I finished school and I did this full time, I came out with the next version of the site, which is actually still the version that we're using today. Wow. 04, 05. And I'd be speaking to other entrepreneurs about Shopify. Yeah, Shopify didn't even exist. (laughs) (laughs) I like the program such as Shopify. Before you outsource to another company and spend a lot of money, try to learn it yourself. Try to set up your first phase of your store by yourself on a program like Shopify and just get some orders in and build from there. Going back to um, 2004, 2005, what was launching a website like, launching an online store? There were so many shopping carts at the time and they were all really bad. Um, there were only a couple. And I just, my web host offered free shopping cart software. And I went ahead and I'm like, okay, I I didn't know much about the industry yet. And I just went ahead and used what was provided. Um, It wasn't great, but it was open enough that I was able to program a lot of the features in that I needed. And that is still the platform we're on today. We are working hard on moving on towards that. It's been about a... uh, almost a five-year project to build on a new platform because it's been a lot of software I've written over the last decade that we needed to rewrite into a new platform. Yeah, my guess is you can't just start from scratch. There's a huge amount of information that needs to migrate it with a a company as old as yours. Yeah, and that, that was one of the biggest challenges of moving to a new platform at this point. We've had over a decade of data that we needed to migrate. So we actually had to write a lot of software on just understanding the data and moving it to a new platform. And over the last decade, there's been a lot of weird oddities in the data that have been uh, throwing bugs into the software that makes it hard to migrate. But uh, we're, we're almost on that. And um, it's one of my biggest stresses in life is moving to this new platform. But it's going to be worth it. Going back to 04, did you find that you had to educate customers about ordering stuff online? Oh, absolutely. <laughs> that was, it's actually so much easier now. Back then, it was um, a lot of confused people and a lot of people that absolutely did not trust the internet and didn't want to place their orders on the internet. So they were fine with 
finding us on the internet, but then they would want to call us. And we were so small at the time that we couldn't really handle the calls. We actually charged $5 convenience fees to place your order on the phone at the time, and people would pay it. Um, And it's crazy to me that we did that. Um, I couldn't imagine doing that today. Coming up next time, something a little different. You can hear Tom talking to podcaster and retail expert Jason Goldberg. Yeah, well, it's been really interesting to see how the retail landscape has changed this year, primarily as a result of COVID. My metaphor for COVID is sort of a a time machine. You know, a lot of the things that became relevant are all things that that the smart people in our industry thought were going to happen, but they thought were going to take much longer to happen. Were you the retail consultant telling your clients, I told you so? Were they perhaps dragging their feet a little bit when it came to online? So truth be told, I have certainly thought, uttered the words in my head, uh, I told you so numerous times. That's it for this episode of Making It Work. Tell us what you think by rating this podcast, leaving a comment, or sending an email to makingitwork at fedex.com. We love hearing what you guys have to say. The next episode is a special one, so if you want to be first in line to listen to it, don't forget to subscribe. Thanks to our entrepreneurs, Kat Samargia, Abun Olaloye, Nick Hawks, and Paul Pallas. Making It Work is produced by Yolene Margri, written by Tom Scallon, and edited by Lars Blockenberg, with creative direction from Jeroen von Koningshoven. Music by Fresh Big Mouth, who created this song with actual sounds from the FedEx Superhub in Memphis, Tennessee. This show is delivered to you by FedEx and presented by Tom Scallon and me, Kelly Martin. The views and opinions of the entrepreneurs in this podcast are their own and not necessarily those of FedEx. 